The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. Time for the big show. Yeah, uh, I would have had something here, my refreshments here, but uh, I seem to have finished it early. Oh, really? This seems to be the thing when we do this show, that uh, we each have an alcoholic beverage of choice. Mine is, uh, is a scotch. Which, again, as we've been discussing in previous episodes, I've been trying to learn how to appreciate. What uh, What are you drinking now? <laughs> That's part of the problem. I couldn't even tell you what it is. <laughs> I could be trying harder. I found something. There's a place called World of Whiskeys at Heathrow Airport. And uh, they, they tend to sell stuff that you can't buy on the shelves at, at regular stores. And I bought a, a Jura, J-U-R-A, that's uh, flavored with honey. And it's picked. So you're bombed out of your gourd, but you're hyper about it. No, 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 no. I, that was not what I had tonight. We had a bottle of wine. Ah, very nice. How, how very delicate of you. A Bordeaux. It was very good. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and... Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Taylor Swift fans will buy anything she puts out, even if it's just eight seconds of static. Meanwhile, if you're a Beyonce fan, chances are that your SAT scores are in the dumper. The hilarious house of Frightenstein, our London bureau chief runs into one of the brains behind the 70s phenomenon to learn the kids today are still big fans. You too may make Toronto their new home, at least temporarily. We'll bring you the latest on the residency rumors. Plus, a Geeks and Beats update on our next Live on Location show and why the Alma Combo sign is no longer up for sale on eBay. And now... Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Taylor Swift tops the iTunes Canada charts. I guess it's true. People will buy anything Taylor Swift puts out. Well, <laughs> well okay. We, we better explain this. So Taylor Swift has this album called 1989 that's coming out, or that's out. And uh, it's going to be a huge success. And um, Taylor Swift is probably the biggest star that we have in pop music right now. So what happened was there was a glitch in the matrix and somebody, when they <laughs> posted uh, a song to iTunes, it was cryptically labeled track three. Something went wrong with the ingestion. And what if people who went to iTunes and saw, wow, new Taylor Swift song called track three, I better get it. So they clicked on it and all they ended up with was eight seconds worth of static. I think we have a... And I, we have actually a recording of, of what you would get for your dollar twenty nine. <laughs> no, no, no. We can't play all eight seconds of silence. If we do, then the Bell Media Radio Network will go nuts because they'll think that they're off the air and all the alarms will kick in in the control room. No, no, it's not silence. It's static. Oh, oh. Well, then heck, let's play set. Let's play eight straight seconds of static. That's right. Okay. Attention. Attention. Your equipment is working perfectly fine. This is not a drill. This is not an emergency. This is a sample of Taylor Swift. I'm so wanting to put like a, a goat noise in there or something. <laughs> I know. But, you know, these things happen. I mean, when, when, when you've got something as complicated as, as, as iTunes and you have to ingest all this music on a, on a regular basis, on an hourly basis, occasionally, occasionally something is going to go wrong. And I'm sure that if you went back through iTunes history, you would find 
other situations where there have been glitches. It's just that we've never seen a glitch with an artist of the stature of Taylor Swift before. So, But do we know how much money she's actually made off those eight seconds of static? You know what? That's a great question. I don't know. Because it's a buck twenty-nine. I know that in the Apple store for apps, that Apple gets 30 cents on the dollar. So if it's a $2 app, they get 60 cents, etc. So I can imagine that 30% probably is the margin that they get for the mp3s as well does that sound right no it is no no if it's a dollar uh if you're buying a track for 99 cents call it a dollar apple takes 30 cents of that so a dollar 29 they take what uh 40 cents so if we can find out how many tracks of track three were purchased then we would know how much at least apple's making on this and quite possibly how much the record industry did too yeah it's it would be fascinating wouldn't it uh but Apple would, ha- I mean, this this is obviously a, a, an error on their part or on somebody's part. Well, actually, you know what? Okay, so it could be an error on, on the iTunes side, mm-hmm. or it could be an error on whatever service was entrusted with uploading uh, digital tracks to all the various digital storefronts. So it would be iTunes, be Amazon, be, you know, whoever else, right? Mm-hmm. So, and maybe some of the streaming music services as well. So it would be interesting to see who's responsible for this. Who posted these eight seconds were the static, and, and how did it happen? Um, sounds like just you know a, a, an honest mistake, but I would like to know if Apple will refund the dollar twenty nine or whatever. Well, you know what you're getting. You you can just hit the little button to preview the track. You would think that someone who heard eight seconds of static would go, "Oh, that's clearly a problem. I'm not buying that track." Well, you would think so. You're cashing in on the people who are dumber than a box of hammer handles. Well, and they were all in Canada. <laughs> a Canadian's dumber than a box of hammer handles. This was this was strictly a Canadian issue. Okay, it didn't happen anywhere else. So we let's let's broaden this out then, because Geeks and Beats writer Patrick Charles wrote this week on the show that if you like Beyonce, you must be an idiot. This is, okay, remember we, we, we've talked about uh, correlation and causation in the past. Yes. So what we've found is a correlation here, and it has to do with uh, musical tastes versus your SAT scores. <laughs> At the California Institute of Technology, for example, the average SAT score is 1520. And by looking at Facebook to determine the most popular liked band of students at Caltech, uh, they were able to conclude Radiohead is for smart people, Beyonce is for dumb people. Now let's let's just go through this. It's from a, a site called Music That Makes You Dumb. Uh, Virgil. Gr. Okay. I would love to see what they had to do about Nicki Minaj. Okay, so I'm looking at the chart right now. I can tell you that the according to this, the dumbest people on the planet, or as far as SAT scores are concerned, is Lil Wayne. Tell me something I don't know. I'm flexing on them like tarsos. These men like boss so These men use Morse code. Boy, like Porsche Excuse me. And the smartest, those who score above 1,300, well above 1,300, 1,350 or so, Mm -hmm. would be Beethoven. Right. Pardon me, would you have any gray poopo? But of course. Thank you. 
So people that are scoring below, let's say, below a thousand. Okay, let's just go through some some artists here. Now, I, I don't understand the SAT score system anyway, so I don't know where I would rank within that system. As as we see here from music that makes you dumb, it starts at eight hundred seventy six and goes all the way to fourteen thirty six. Right, and I, I think you're. What's the maximum? Fifteen, sixteen hundred on a. I, that's my point. Is I don't know, and so I don't know if because I listen to Bob Dylan, chances are my SAT scores would be in the 1200 range versus listening to Aerosmith which would be sub 1000. Okay, understanding your SAT scores. I'm looking this up right now. All right. SAT scores are uh, on a, reported on a scale from 200 to 800, with additional subscores reported for the essay ranging from 2 to 12. Ah, so if you're a good essay writer, your SAT scores would climb. Yeah, so your score range represents a snapshot in time. If you took the test multiple times, that number would likely change, increase or decrease on each test. Average mean scores are based upon the most recent SAT scores of all students of a particular graduating class. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's 1,600 is... is Okay, so if you're a brainiac, you're, you're still most likely to expose yourself to more of the classical music genre. Hip-hop is sub-1,000. You uh, get into the Beatles at about the 1,200 mark as well. ACDC spans the generational SAT brainiac <laughs> gap. Both okay. sides. Hang on here. The percentile of the perfect score was 99.98 on the 2400 scale and 99.93 on the 1600 scale. Okay, so we're using the 1600. Right. Uh, and it says here only seven of the million test takers scored above 1580. So a perfect SAT is 1600. Let's go with that. Okay, so let's go back to our, our chart. Now here's interesting, interesting to note. You are in the low end if you're interested in hip hop and reggae, but Bob Marley specifically, that's right down the middle of the road. Yeah, isn't that interesting? What else is, uh, if you're dumb? Oh, Nickelback. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Look at this Instagram. It's been an excite of him. Started out as a lemon tart. Then my phone went and made it art. And these are my fingernails. The beauty is in the details. Drinking my ties on a cruise. Just a coincidence, it's also boobs. Everyone look at my feet. Get jealous that I'm at the beach. Probably knew I was going there. You saw my planes wing in the air. I get bored of city lights. Try seeing them in black and white. Putting glasses on a cat. I'm the first one to think of that. Oh, 
one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. You're listening to Geeks and Beats on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Bell Media Radio Network. I didn't know Forest City was the nickname for London, Ontario. It is? Apparently it is. I thought it was the insurance city. (laughs) Well, we, of course, are now broadcasting on CJBK in London, Ontario, and someone who works there went, are you kidding me? I'm going down to the Comic-Con. I said, by all means, report for us. And so sure enough, LT grabbed her uh, iPhone and hit the streets of the Forest City to find... Wait, 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 wait. Who? LT. When did we... He, she? She. I'm sorry. We now have a London bureau chief. Did I not tell you? We do? Yeah. No. How many people are on staff now? 13 now. You know, Christmas is coming up. They're going to expect bonuses. (laughs) What, what, 20% of their, their salary, perhaps? Of zero? (laughs) Yeah, okay. On one end of the spectrum, there's the Wall Street investment bankers. On the other end of the spectrum, there's our people. So guess who she found? It's time for another Geeks and Beats live on location show. This is London Bureau Chief LT at the first ever Forest City Comic Con in London, Ontario. Mitch Markowitz from the hilarious House of Frankenstein. Fun, fun, fun. I love the Comic-Cons. I love all of these live shows because I get to meet fans. I get to people who've been watching our show. Actually, I'm, I'm meeting these days three generations. People who watched the original shows in 1971 when we first did it. Their kids who watched the reruns. And now their grandchildren who they're introducing the show through, uh, through DVDs. So how did you become interested in geek culture and events like Comic-Con and your show even? Well, I, I think the, the crowds, the audiences sort of overlap. I find that a lot of the people who are interested in this kind of thing also watch Frankenstein and, and loved it and loved the humor. Um, and uh, and I love seeing them. I love the costumes and the energy that you see at these shows. Do you think shows like The Big Bang Theory and even your show have made being a geek kind of more popular? Like- oh, absolutely. More popular, acceptable, mm-hmm. if you will. You know, where you used to be sort of shunned upon to be the geek in the corner. Now you're the guy to follow. You're the you're the star of the class. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think Hollywood is doing a good job of portraying geeks right now? Well, they could do a better job, but no, they're doing a good job. I mean, and the show you just mentioned is now in one of the, the top ten shows on the air, drawing huge audiences, huge ratings. So more will come to follow. No, they're doing a good job, okay. yeah, especially since it's a niche market. Big niche, but a niche. Well, it's a big niche now because it's getting more famous and more popular. Yeah, and it feeds off each other. How well are women being portrayed in the industry? And do you think they're they're doing a good job getting more women involved? Should there be more women involved? What do you think? Well, the 
answer is, I'll start with the last question. Absolutely, there should be more women involved. But I think things have changed dramatically in the past 20 years or so. I mean, it used to be that women were all portrayed as secretaries or waitresses, and that's just not the case at all anymore. I mean, the Vice President of the United States is a woman, and then senior executives in lots of the shows are women. So it's, it's done a complete reversal, and there's more to come. I mean, for sure, we're going to see more and more of the big heavyweights being women. And uh, who is your favorite character? Comic books? Uh, Superman. Superman? Yeah. yeah. He was my idol, and that's where this super hippie character came from in Larry's as a Frankenstein, because it certainly didn't fit in with the rest of the show. I mean, it was all horror and Transylvania and things like that, and where does super hippie come from? Just, I mean, it was a sign of the times. It was the 70s, and the hippie part made sense, and we just threw it in, and then people seemed to like it. He was my life. I mean, I grew up watching him on the original Superman show on television, and I was devastated when he apparently committed suicide. George Reeves did. Uh, but he was a huge influence. And I'm influenced by television in general. I watch a lot of TV, and I'm influenced by it. And it's nice to see that the younger generation watched our show, and it influenced them. So it all, you know, it won. It's, it, it, it's, it's all one big vicious circle, but it's not so vicious. At the first ever Forest City Comic Con, LT Geeks and Beats London. Were you ever a fan of the hilarious House of Frightenstein? I think if you were a kid growing up in Canada in the 1970s and you didn't have cable TV, you had to be. I mean, Billy Van. I mean, uh, who was your favorite kid? You watched it, right? I watched it. Um, the Wolfman was one of my fan uh, favorites because, of course, he was the DJ. But yeah. Igor, I loved Igor and his psychedelic dance moves. In front of the green screen, and that weird green screen thing. Oh yeah, that was really cool. And you know, Billy Billy Van played how many different characters on that? Almost all of them. Oh, pretty much all of them. But you know, when he was, I am the Wolf Man. Oh, I mean, I, I love that sort of stuff. And they would play. Okay, if you don't know what we're talking about, there would be a segment of this show, this hilarious House of Fright Frightenstein, which, by the way, was filmed mostly in Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, straight to videotape. Uh, really low budget stuff. It was uh, Canadian content that. Um, was aimed at kids under under what under fourteen and under maybe yep and it was the premise was it was a, this goofy vampire and his all his characters that live in the hilarious house of Frankenstein and there was the Wolfman would uh, do this this thing where he would play a hit song of the week and then he would step in front of a green screen and then sort of dance or, or mime or, or air guitar or something to that hit. Yeah. Now, Mitch Markowitz was part of that as on the writing team. He he went on to do some pretty major things. Uh, he wrote for Good Morning Vietnam. He did? He wrote the movie Crazy People. Television credits include uh, MASH, Too Close for Comfort. I'm telling you. And this guy's making the rounds um, on the, uh, the Comic-Con circuit, just talking to people about stuff and nonsense. I do remember that uh, Vincent Price was part of this. Vincent Price would always do the intro and the extra. That's right, yeah. 1971 is when it started. They did 130 episodes. And one of the f creators was a guy named Ross Perigo, who was a professor, professor of journalism at Concordia University. Oh, uh, well, anyway, Mitch Markowitz actually has a uh, Wikipedia. Oh, it's a very short entry. Yes. An American screenwriter best known for Good Morning Vietnam, Crazy People, MASH. MASH? I just said that. I wasn't listening. 
<laughs> you were too busy looking stuff up. I, I was. I mean, because now you've 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 rekindled some some childhood memories in my well, head. Well, you can buy the DVDs now. You can? There are DVDs. And the neat thing is, is it's very much like the WKRP problem where they couldn't resyndicate it because they didn't have the permission to play the music that the Wolfman played as the DJ segment. Really? Want to show your love of the world's most popular podcast, but don't want to open your wallet? Rate and review The Big Show on iTunes and Stitcher. We're not above bribing you either. The craziest review could win you free crap from the Geeks and Beats swag store. Time now for a Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. We had been lamenting how since we joined the Bell Media Radio Network that uh, we weren't getting a lot of people opening their wallets to support the show uh, and get a co-producer credit as part of that. Last week it was Victor Biggio, and this week Kevin Klo, a.k.a. Dr. Proximo. Is is he new? Uh, He's done this once before. Oh, okay. I wasn't so sure. So we've got a, a, a hearty band of fans uh, who are willing to help keep this show going. <laughs> Two. Yes, both Two of is them. not a band, unless you're the White Stripes. <laughs> well, maybe they'll end up uh, coming down to the big show live on location as well, because November 2nd will be at the Toronto Downtown Record Show, and we will uh, record the program live to air, so to speak, at uh, 11.30 uh, Eastern time. I was uh, talking to my buddy Ivor about that today. He's going to uh, join us. Ivor Hamilton? The famous CFNY personality, Ivor Hamilton. And the guy, vice president of catalog marketing at Universal Music Canada. So he's going to join us. In fact, uh, there, there's actually a, a tradition that we have, and you should actually take part in this, because there is a, um, a greasy spoon at the corner of Broadview and Danforth on the east side, and we always meet there for juicy sausages and eggs. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. No, no, we ha- you have to come. I mean, there's usually six or eight of us, and uh, I think, I think... Uh, I would be in your best interest to come because uh, one of the guys who will be joining us this year is named Phil King. I know Phil King. Yes. How do I know Phil King? Well, he, he's in charge of programming at, at Bell TV. That might be the reason why I know the Phil King. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. So you should uh, you should definitely uh, show up. Apparently, your pooches want to come too. Oh, I don't know what the problems are. Why, I got one dog with a with a with an ear issue. Um, there's these. <laughs> There's these little balls in a dog's ear that... uh, Do I really want to know this? Well, one of these balls in my dog's right ear burst. And it creates all kinds of deformities to the ear, so we had to have it drained, and then we had to have it splinted. That didn't work, so we had to do it again. And uh, yeah, I don't want to know this. More trouble than kids. Uh, yeah, probably. Apparently, she disagrees. Yes. So uh, you uh, got the most expensive used records sold. Speaking of the the big show that we'll be at. Oh, by the way, we never finished this. While we're down there, you're going to want to join us as well. The door is actually open at uh, 11 o'clock. Uh, it's five bucks at the door. It is at uh, just north of Danforth there on Broadview Avenue. It's at uh, the Estonian Center, 958 Broadview Avenue. Two rooms this year. We will have, uh, we'll be in one of the rooms. Um, we'll be there for some time while Juicy Sausages uh, will be at 9 so we can be there anytime after 10. Now, uh, for the hardcore and the uh, privileged and the VIPs, uh, the doors actually open at 10. I noticed the article here on geeksandbeats.com says we're doing the show at noon. It does? Yeah. Do you want to move that down? Yeah, I mean, because the crowd's going to be there. I mean... So we'll make it 1130. Well, we should make it 11. 
Well, the, the, well, the doors will just open at 11. No, 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 but the, VIP, ch- the VIPs will be there at, 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 at 10. Yeah, but something tells me this is starting to move down the path of the comic book guy when you talk about the VIPs at a vintage show. That's a, of course it is. That's 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 what record shows are all about. <laughs> it's our core demographic. It is. I mean, remember last year all those people came up? True. And, and there were women even. Show starts at 11. That's oh. it. I've spoken. All right. Show starts at 11 when the door is open. And it's not live to air or anything like that. It's, it's simply... Sure it is. <laughs> well, it's, it's live to our laptops. It's not live to... Well, this year we might very well have some uh, some internet access. We might actually be able to do this live to air like a Google Hangout. Okay, that's your problem. You deal. Yeah, I'll figure that out. Follow Twitter. <laughs> I am not at all interested, but okay. We will be there, and um, the problem is that that comes two days after payday for me, so... So you're going to be broke by the end of it. <sighs> I, uh, I, you know, yeah. Particularly if you find a uh, Sonatas for Violins by Columbia Music released in 1964. Well, okay, let me let me explain. If you've ever been, where is this? If you've ever been trolling for used vinyl on the internet. Oh, I do that all the time. No, no you don't. No. Don't, don't. Don't lie. There is a site called Discogs, and we actually talked about Discogs last week mm-hmm. because they're the same people who are responsible for Vinyl Hub, which is a worldwide database of independent record stores. So Discogs, the, the main site, um, is it tries to connect buyers and sellers of, of rare records. And what makes a record rare is very hard to explain. It It's... Usually, people end up searching for stuff that you have never, ever, ever heard of. I read a, a magazine called Record Collector every month. It comes out of the UK. And the stuff that people are willing to spend thousands of dollars on are stuff that you've never heard. There's a, a, a genre of music from the 1960s in England called Northern Soul. And people are spending gazillions of dollars on Northern Soul 45s. And you have never heard of the song. You have never heard of the artist. But they were so obscure. And the scene has taken on a thing of its own. So that collectors of Northern Soul will pay almost anything to get the rarest records. Now, if we go to this uh, Discogs chart, which talks about the 10 most expensive records sold through Discogs so far this year. And I don't recognize any of the artists. No, neither do I. Which is, uh, you know, Old Man and the Sea. Necros, Bernard, Coley. These are from anywhere 1964 all the way up to 1987. Yeah, the the most recent record is, that should be Coil, by the way. They spell it wrong, they went Coley, but it's uh, Coil. It's an uh, um, uh, experimental industrial band from the time. I, I find rather interesting. Uh, it's the, the record's called uh, Gold is the Metal with the Broadest Shoulders. Never heard of it, but somebody purchased that back in February for almost 1900 wow. US dollars. In fact, it was the most expensive record sold through Discogs this year. Geeks and Beats update on the Elma Combo sign. As uh, you've been to geeksandbeats.com, you know that uh, the sign went up for your uh, auction on eBay. Yeah, I'm trying to get uh, my employer to buy it. Well, your employer's not going to be able to buy it. Why? What? No. It's been pulled from eBay. Really? Why? Yes. Oh, I've been doing some digging on this and I've got it on high authority that um, there's a, a bit of a thing going on between the two guys who run the Elmo or are running it into the ground or out of business and uh, that there really wasn't any genuine intention to sell the sign on eBay even though it was listed at a minimum bit of 30 grand that this was just to get people talking about it and, a, and an attempt to try to save the damn thing. Not just the sign, but the entire club. Okay, so where, where does this leave us? 
Where it leaves us is about $2.7 million. If you don't know what we're talking about, the Elma Combo is this ancient dive bar on Spadina in Toronto. It is very famous. I mean, Queens of the Stone Age, the Ramones, U2, the Rolling Stones, they've all played there over the years. And the most famous thing about the Elma Combo, other than the people who have played there, is the sign out front, which is this tacky 1950s era palm tree neon sign. Um, it's one of those things that if you're of a certain age and you moved to Toronto, one of the first things you did was went to the North End of Spadina and, and just looked at that famous sign, kind of like the Sand the Record Man sign. So it's out of business. They haven't been able to keep it up and running, and I know they've had multiple owners over time. Well, it's not out of business yet. No, they've got they've got some gigs going through to, through to November. But apparently, if they want to keep the thing up and running and the doors open on a long-term basis, they need about $2.7 million. Why? Why, why so much? Um, well, they need about a million bucks, one one point three million to renovate the property. There's a mortgage on the joint as well. Oh, okay. But if you want, you could probably become a partner in the Elmo for five hundred grand. You got that kind of walking around money? No. Can you imagine though that that's all it would take to save the thing? Just just get one of the one of the partners out and move on. So, this eBay listing was a cry for help. A desperate cry for help. Mm. And, and it certainly got a lot of attention, so maybe it got that cry. You know, maybe we need one of the Dragon's Den guys to come in and take over. You know, I started watching that in Shark Tank, and I find myself terribly emotionally invested. And, and uh, why? But, uh, yeah, so they had a $30,000 reserve. Apparently nobody met it, so it's not going to be sold. But it was never really intended to be sold in the first place. Piece of Canadian history. We could probably put it on the GNB headquarters if the thing actually does go under. I wonder what the dimensions of that thing would be. It's two stories tall. Well, I know. So, but what does that mean? Does that mean 30 feet? Above two, a story is 12 feet. So 24 feet at least. Call it 25 feet with... Uh, with. Uh... All right. Let's scratch together a half million bucks. We own the joint. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And you'll be at the... You'll be tending bar? Yeah. I'm definitely not serving scotch. Right. And I'll be, uh, I'll be in charge of the back line. Absolutely. No. It's not going to happen. Ah, oh, come on. No, I got to be in bed by 930. There's no way. <laughs> Own one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. You're listening to Geeks and Beats on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Bell Media Radio Network. Got a question about music, love, that suspicious rash? Ask Alan anything. Call 323-319-NERD. Hi, this is Hannah Ryan from Calgary, Alberta, uh, the lovely mountain city. I'm calling to ask Alan a question, actually. Uh, I go to a lot of shows and concerts and that kind of thing, and I'm constantly wondering what the deal with this whole encore business is. I've only ever seen one act live that refuses to do it, and that was the Foo Fighters. Um, Yeah, and I'm just wondering what the history of the encore is and kind of why bands feel that they need to disappear for uh, a few seconds and come back on. To me, it makes more sense in stadium concert, less sense in uh, smaller club shows. So that'd be great. Thanks, Alan. 
Ah, the encore, a long-standing showbiz tradition that drives a lot of people nuts. The idea is that, you know, the artist, the performer leaves the stage, allows the love to build in the audience, and then comes back to do the audience a favor with one or two or three or more uh, songs before the night ends. It's, it's a fairly common thing. It gives the... It, 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 first of all, it's tradition. It's been going on forever. And secondly, it gives the artist an opportunity to go backstage, uh, take a hit of oxygen or something stronger, <laughs> and and then come back. Um, it's, I don't know. It, it, it's it's you kind of audiences kind of expect it, and it's kind of cool when you know that there's one more big song or two more big songs to go. And everybody's whipped into a frenzy, and here's an opportunity for, you know, mass catharsis. Has anyone ever refused to come back? Oh, there are there are a lot of artists that they don't. There are there are a lot of artists who don't believe in encores, so they will give their all through a main set, and they will leave, and there will be no encore. You'll just that's it. Lights come up. Good night. Thank you for coming. But I could see how while that is not phony. And that having them is really quite phony. That if you're in the crowd and you're like, I haven't heard my favorite song. I really want to hear my favorite song. And you chant for the guy to come back. And they don't come back. You leave disappointed. Well, you do. Which is, which is why you, when you, you have to make sure that you give your, your all and play all the big hits in the body of your set. What's this thing about you two possibly planning a lengthy residence in Toronto? Did they look at what Kate Bush did and said, hey, that's a great idea? No, I think they looked at what the Rolling Stones did. Um, it, it's very expensive to take a band of the size of U2 on the road. I mean, we just have to look at what they did with the 360 tour, uh, which grossed, by the way, $736 million over about 110, 115 shows. Three quarters of a billion bucks? It's the most successful tour ever so you know, when it, when if you remember the the interview that i had with the edge not that long ago uh, yes. you know, we asked i asked them you know what are you going to proceed how do you get bigger how do you what do you do next and the answer is well you, you you scale it down and you try something something different so what we saw with the rolling stones was that they would set up in a city it was new york and uh they would have the people come to them uh, much like kate bush did they would have she would did 22 nights at the um, Hammersmith Apollo in, in, in London, and people came from all over the world came to her. Great for her because she just set up once, took over the theater for approximately six weeks, and you know just went to work every night. Um, the story is, and this is far, far from confirmed, but you two might set up a series of residencies rather than do the arduous going from gig to gig to gig kind of thing. I mean, it, it, it might make sense. Well, they're getting on in years, too. There's no denying that. No, they're they're in their middle 50s. and, and uh, So they're ancient then. In other words, aren't they, Mr. 50-year-old? <sighs> <laughs> I'm not that far behind. <laughs> you know, I really not. ought not to be mocking. So uh, I think it's actually, if you live in Toronto, I think it's a really good idea because, you know, you got you two hanging around for... And it would be great for tourism overall because... You'd be dragging people in from all over the place. Well, that's it. Yeah, and, and and you know Toronto's got this new music office that they're trying to get up and running. This would be exactly the kind of thing. So so maybe what you do is you you stay in Toronto for I don't know three weeks, and uh, you get together with the tourism office uh, and and uh, the Toronto music office, and you you know promote it as as a destination for you know these however many weeks, however many dates. 
and everybody gets to, you know, save a save a bunch of money in terms of tour uh, tour. Everybody gets to save a bunch of money in tour production costs, and the city wins with hotel rooms and restaurants and all the rest of it. Did you see this article meantime? I'm just thinking about different ways that these bands have been making money and sitting in one spot and having the money come to you as part of it. But the other part of it is actually going out and doing these special events, like not concerts themselves. Oh, the corporate events. Right. Metallica is going to be playing BlizzCon 2014. Metallica played a Salesforce.com convention. (laughs) They did. What stage in your career life are you when you're doing that? Um, you are in the stage that you can command huge dollars for an hour and a half's work. Um, I did a speaking engagement uh, a couple of weeks ago, and the guy that was in charge of sound said that he had to get up the next day because he was dealing with a private show um, um, the next day at a home in King City, north of Toronto. So this is a monster home. This is Well, they set out a, uh, they created a big tent in the yard and uh, performing at this private function was Sam Roberts and Jewel. Really? So knowing what I know about what artists charge for something like this, we figured that the talent costs, and this is uh, outside of the erection of the tent, outside of the back line. Let me guess. Um, $550,000. Not that high. We're probably looking at about... 150 to 175. So 175 grand for 60 minutes worth of work. Um, well, there's two of them there. So, you know, Sam probably get 75 to 100. And, no, Sam would probably get 50 to 75 and Jewel would get the rest. That's a guess. That's a, that's a ballpark guess. So, I mean, absolutely. You, you, you know, and, and your, your, your per diem and your travel costs, all that is, is, is above and beyond this, this performance fee. Now, I, can I, can I, I'll tell you a story. A couple of uh, years ago, I was down in the Caribbean and we rented a villa next to a woman named Melanie. And Melanie was the premier event planner on the island. And we went out for lunch and she says, you know, I have a client. And she wouldn't talk about who it was, but he would like to have somebody perform acoustically or maybe not, but whatever, uh, for a small group of people, 25, 30, 35 people on his yacht in the harbor, New Year's Day, to celebrate his 50th birthday. Well, New Year's Day would be a pricey gig. So I said, well, what is your price point? She goes, well, we have three, 250, 500, and a million plus, plus per diem, plus associated costs. And before you say anything, she said, we asked Elton John and he wasn't available. (laughs) <laughs> so I actually helped her. I put her in touch with a, with a booking agency to try and find somebody that would be appropriate for this. In the end, the client, who turned out to be some sort of very wealthy Middle Eastern gentleman, uh, didn't go for it, went for something else. But uh, they did get somebody to perform on this yacht New Year's Day. And, and you know, I have no idea how much. They, she wouldn't tell me who, who it was. But I think, I think based on some gossip that I heard. It was an emir from Kuwait. GMB writer Matt Padani writes that the entertainment industry has become an increasingly important source to help developers enhance the overall experience for gamers. So going to BlizzCon 2014 would be a no-brainer for Metallica after Paul McCartney recently composed a score for the uh, big shoot-'em-up game Destiny.
yeah. I mean, uh, Trent Reznor was uh, a composer for, was it the original Doom or Quake? Kevin Spacey's got a role in the upcoming version of Call of Duty. The video game industry is bigger than the movie industry. $66 billion today. So, you know, there's a lot of money to be made there. I mean, video games are one of the few things that people will line up at midnight for to be the first to to grab the games from Best Buy or whatever so they can go home and play it. Video games and iPhones, as we had discussed last week, you know, we used to line up for the opening of a record uh, track or what have you, but not anymore. He, he, also, Matt points out that apparently the tickets are all sold out for BlizzCon 2014, which is by uh, Blizzard Entertainment. These are the guys behind World of Warcraft and StarCraft and Diablo. Mm -hmm. But you could actually watch the Metallica show by spending $40 to buy a virtual ticket and live stream the entire event. How much? 40 bucks. Not a chance. No way. What, what, to hear a streaming version of Metallica in low-res compression? No. No, 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 no. Never. Matt is a big gamer, by the way. He also reviewed on GeeksAndBeats.com the video game Destiny that uh, Paul McCartney was actively involved in. It had a $500 million budget. Oh, I know. I absolutely. A billion bucks. Yes, I know. And, you know, and if, if it's a good game and gets good reviews. And this one did not get good reviews from Matt. Oh, it didn't? No, no. He says the biggest problem with is the broader game design and the gameplay, and all these little issues with Destiny add up over time. Uh, and uh, you spend all this time customizing your character, and that doesn't really take you as far as you want to go. See, you know, I kind of stopped at video games with Tetris. I'm very good at Tetris. Uh, well, just not, not even the, the little social games. The, the, the uh, Wifey has spent, hand to God, $98 on bejeweled Blitz add-ons and stuff. Really? Every once in a while, I get a boop, boop, boop. Your wife just spent $4.99 on iTunes. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter, Facebook, and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.